As we get into the book of Nahum this morning, last week we got kind of the bulk of our introductions out of the way as far as the book of Nahum is concerned. Some hundred years or so after the oracle of Jonah that led to Nineveh's repentance, there comes another oracle. This one, however, is not delivered as one of repentance, but is delivered to God's people as an oracle of encouragement, what God is about to do. It also comes as an oracle to the Assyrians of damnation for the people of Nineveh. I always find it interesting, the historical references. We've got a good, fairly accurate time period for when this this oracle comes in, because the book of Nahum references the future destruction of Nineveh, which we know from historical records happens in 612 B.C. at the hands of the Babylonians. And it also references the previous destruction of Thebes in 663 B.C. by the Assyrians. So somewhere between 663 B.C. and 612 B.C., we have this happening. I like to make mention of these major historical events, not just because I find the history interesting, but I also think it's incredibly important in our day and age to ground our minds in the understanding that the accounts found here in Scripture are true historical records. They're not just fairy tales. They're not good moral stories, this actually happened. This actually happened to real people in a real country. Somewhere between 663 B.C. and 612 B.C., Nahum, a prophet of the Lord, his name meaning comforter, brings this prophecy of entwined comfort and also of judgment. But this oracle is not just the musings of a scholar or the predictions of a political analyst. It's not simply the wish of an oppressed citizen of Judah or a former citizen of northern Israel. No, the word that Nahum brings is brought directly from the Lord. And as such, our passage this morning reminds both those comforted and those being judged of the character of the one who sends his message. The Lord has sent this message by way of Nahum the prophet. And our passage this morning introduces the one that would send such a message. So I invite you to turn with me to Nahum chapter 1, and we will be reading verses 1 to 8. Again, Nahum 1, 1 to 8. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. 
The mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? O Lord, our God, we come before you knowing that you are God and you are good. We come before you knowing that you are greater in majesty and power than we could ever imagine. And we worship you because you are rightly to be worshipped. You are deserving of all honor and glory and praise. And Lord, as we spend some time in your word coming to know you better and how you have revealed yourself to us in your word, we ask that you would inspire in us hearts of worship, hearts that would see this description of who you are in your character and that we would not be able to help but to worship you. I pray that you would soften our hearts and prepare our hearts to understand this and to not just hear it at an intellectual level, but that it would penetrate our hearts and our souls that your word might be effective in changing the way that we live and changing the way that we see our world. God, we thank you for your people. We thank you for your word and for the opportunity to study your word and to know that it is true. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So if I were a betting man, I would say that most of you have been in a situation like I'm about to describe at some point in your life. Maybe, maybe you were at a gymnasium or playing a sport or just sitting in a restaurant, but wherever you were, you were going about your business and then someone caught your eye. And some variation of this phrase comes out of your mouth. Man, I would not want to be on the wrong side of that guy. I think all of us have been there at some point or another. Or maybe conversely, you might have said something to the effect of, I want to be on his team. My most memorable experience with something like this was with a Fijian man named Kali. I saw him from a distance. Some of you have heard the story. He seemed like a big guy, but not overly so. And as I was walking across the parking lot to meet this guy, I realized that he is comfortably leaning on the edge of a boat on top of a boat trailer and go, that's not a normal thing to be able to do. But up close and personal, I meet this Kali, and he is seven foot four. He is a former Fijian national rugby player and built like a brick wall. He is one of the most gigantic people I have ever seen in my life. He, shaking hands with him was like shaking hands with a grizzly bear. It was... He envelops your whole hand, and you just look up and go, I want to be on your team. It doesn't matter what it is, I want to be on your team. <laughs> and also, I had no doubt if things were to go sideways, whose side I wanted to be on in that tilt. But when we look at the book of Nahum, 
it might be difficult as we spend time reading of God's judgment on Nineveh to see why we would have Nahum, a man whose name means comforter, being bringing this message of judgment, and how can this be a letter of comfort? But as God gives his own introduction through Nahum, he makes it clear that he is the one that you want to be on your side. You want to be on his side. There's a big difference between a warning given by someone with power and authority versus a helpless or weak individual. Our passage makes clear this morning that the forthcoming oracle comes from one with all the necessary qualifications to back up his words with action. As big and scary and violent and brutal as Assyria was, they couldn't hold a candle to the Lord. Our passage breaks up into three distinct sections. The first is verse 1 running to the beginning of verse 3. And it's marked by this repeated phrase, the Lord. And when we read the Lord here, it is the tetragrammaton Yahweh, the name of the Lord, given to Moses. This leaves no question about who it is that is giving this warning, whose word it is that Nahum is speaking. And in these three verses, we get five unequivocal statements about who Yahweh is. Yahweh is a jealous and avenging God. Yahweh is avenging and wrathful. Yahweh takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Yahweh is slow to anger and great in power. Yahweh will by no means clear the guilty. Well, the first of the Lord's attributes that we see here is his jealousy. Remember, as we will have to remind ourselves throughout this letter, that this oracle's audience is primarily God's own people. And this jealousy of the Lord is a double-edged thing. It encompasses an absolute jealous protection of his people. And it also speaks of a jealous insistence on faithfulness from his people. God's people are both comforted and warned that God will jealously protect them from the infringement that they have been experiencing at the hands of the Assyrians. But they wouldn't have missed the reference here to Exodus 20 and its prohibition against the worship of idols. You shall not bow, to, bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. His jealousy goes two ways, both protecting and demanding faithfulness. So our Lord is jealous. Yahweh is jealous. And the next characteristic is the clearest. Three times in a row we get this exact same term, translated avenging or vengeance. It's all the same word. Remember the importance as we read Scripture, the importance of repetition. Scripture says something once, we should be paying attention. It repeats it twice in short order. It should kind of light up for us, and we need to pay attention to what's going on there. But three times over, 
that particular passage should be bolded and underscored and italicized and circled for us. There are only very few times throughout Scripture where you have this threefold repetition of the same word. Most memorable is probably found in Isaiah's vision of the Lord in Isaiah 6. He says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. This is where we get the basis for calling our God the thrice holy God, emphasizing the total and utterly incomparable holiness of God. Well, our God is holy, holy, holy. He is also an avenging God, avenging and wrathful, taking vengeance on his adversaries. This idea of vengeance, the avenging wrath of God, is so far outside of the scope of what we might be used to. For us, vengeance often feels like a dirty word. It feels totally alien in a Christian context, and to some extent, that is a good thing. There's no place in a Christian context for individual, personal vengeance and vendettas. Why is that? Where has the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, avenger of blood chasing down the man who killed your family member to take lawful vengeance upon him that we can find throughout Scripture. Well, in Romans 12, it says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Vengeance itself is not inherently wrong. In its simplest form, vengeance is simply the punitive form of meeting out what is owed. That vengeance is entirely in the hands of one far greater than we are. And so far as our passage is concerned, the Lord is thrice over qualified for that role. His enemies will receive what they are due at his hand. And this is good news for those who follow him. They can trust that the wicked will not always prosper, even if they seem to be at the moment. The final two statements about Yahweh form a pair, and they're based on the passage that Dick read earlier from Exodus 34. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. Yahweh is slow to anger and great in power, and he will by no means clear the guilty. 
I want to clarify something here. Our God is not the vindictive deity waiting to smite anyone who would step out of line, bucket of lightning bolts at the ready, ready to just zap anyone who would dare disobey his commands. Even the incredible retribution that is in store for Nineveh comes 100 years after being sent a warning prophet in Jonah. This couplet, Yahweh is slow to anger and great in power, and Yahweh will by no means clear the guilty. It paints a picture of a God who is incredibly powerful, but who has full reins on his power and his character. And he does not act the way that we might expect the powerful to act. In our world, we see the powerful who must pridefully display their power at every turn just to prove how powerful they are. Look what I can do. Our God does display his power. He does act to avenge the wrongs of this world, but he does so in his timing and not ours. And he is slow to anger and great in power. 2 Peter 3 gives us an amazing picture. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. One of the things I love about Scripture is that I can jump back and forth between millennia. Old Testament, New Testament, Old Covenant, New Covenant. And I know in particular that any of these descriptions of the Lord, who he is, his character, they will apply no matter where it comes from in the Bible. Our God is the same across all time. And whether then or now, he is still the Lord. And that means there is no escaping his holy and his just character. Speaking of descriptions of the Lord, our second section in today's scripture begins to describe the Lord in a way that anyone from any time can identify. And it uses the imagery of creation. His way is in the whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. That imagery is incredibly clear in its emphasis. There is nothing, nothing at all for mankind that we can pull on that so incredibly makes the point of the unimaginable, unimaginable power and magnitude of our God than the unstoppable forces of nature. 
whirlwind, sandstorm, drought, earthquake, fire. And when we compare God to these things, we recognize that even these are minuscule in comparison to the greatness of his might and his power. But they are the greatest thing that we as finite beings have to grasp at. As I was thinking about that, I remembered a fact that I'd read that the average hurricane can daily release energy at a level about 200 times the total electrical generating power of all of planet Earth at one time. So if you took every power plant, nuclear and otherwise, every power generating option that we have, one hurricane in one day, 200 times the amount of energy and power. And our God is compared to the whirlwind and the storm. And we know that the whirlwind, the hurricane, doesn't even begin to touch the limits of God's power. Our God is greater even than that. No kidding that God's people should be comforted that they can be on the side of such a God. That God that dwarfs even the powers of nature that we can't even begin to fathom. In light of how he has identified the Lord in verses 2 through 5, Nahum's rhetorical questions in verse 6 have clear answers. When the Lord comes to avenge, when his patience is replaced with recompense, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? None can. No person, no nation, no establishment, no false god. There is nothing that can stand before the Lord. Everything is shattered before him. And yet we have our final verses. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. We are not often used to thinking about God in terms of that second half of this section. We have lots of good stronghold imagery that we like to hold on to. Lots of for God so loved the world. Lots of plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Not so much vengeance and wrath and anger and indignation. And at first, that makes sense in Christian circles, for we know that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. But we need to recognize that for us to rightly value what has been done for us, we need to properly appreciate the incredible work of Christ upon the cross. We need to properly appreciate what it means for him to receive in himself the punishment that we have deserved what it means that he bore in himself the full wrath of God. We have to at least begin to touch and understand what the wrath of God is for us to understand what it means that we have been saved from the wrath of God. 
And as we work our way through Nahum, we're going to read about the wrath of God that is about to be poured out upon Nineveh. We need to recognize that we ourselves were objects of that same manner of wrath until God saved us by his son, Jesus Christ. We talk a lot in our comfortable-ish Western circles about first world problems. What realistically are more like minor inconveniences that seem like incredible frustrations of how blessed we are and blessed with such relative ease when our phone dies because it's cold outside get all frustrated and go, well, first world problems. My $1,000 cell phone is, its battery's not working. First world problems. And these first world problems are why I think everyone, every single person should at some point in their lives spend some time seeing what it might look like on the other end of the spectrum what many around the world call day-to-day life. When I was a teenager, I was blessed to go and build a technical school in Grand Guave, Haiti. I was also blessed to go and spend some time working at soup kitchens in East Hastings, Vancouver. And from that moment on, my perspective on the world changed. I saw what it looks like and how first world some of my problems really were. In the same way, I think we all need to spend some time in places like Nahum, where we can see the incredibly gut-wrenching horror that comes with being faced with the vengeance of God. The Lord is good. He is a stronghold in the day of trouble. He does know those who take refuge in him. But also, with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of his enemies. He will pursue his enemies into darkness. We need to understand the depth of the wrath of God so we can appreciate the salvation that we have been given. What did this mean to our original audience, to the dispersed northern kingdom of Israel, and to the oppressed southern kingdom of Judah? It meant that no matter what fresh horrors Assyria was able to come up with, that none of it would compare to the wrath of God. I said last week that Assyria was known for its brutality and coming up with new ways to terrify the cities that it would approach to the point where cities would give up before they even sent a soldier before them because they knew what awaited a city conquered by the Assyrians. The murder of all of the most vulnerable individuals in that city, the horrible things that the Assyrians would put them through. But God's people knew that it didn't matter what Assyria was capable of because their God was greater the one that they were able to call their stronghold, he was greater. And his wrath was coming against Assyria. 
It meant that they could hold on to hope because they knew that if they would run to God, that they would find refuge. He would protect them, and the enemies of God would one day receive the just rewards of their wickedness. It meant that God's people, as they read about the coming judgment on Assyria, that in each judgment that God would bring upon Assyria, God would be proving himself to be true to his word and faithful to his promises and good to his people as he had been throughout millennia before. But what about us this morning? How do we handle this avenging God of immeasurable might who Scripture tells us is good, tells us that he is a stronghold in the day of trouble, that he knows those who take refuge in him, but who will also completely and utterly make an end of his adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Well, first and foremost, we need to recognize that this God is the same God that we worship today. Our God has not changed from the book of Nahum. There is not an Old Testament and a New Testament God. He has not flip-flopped and changed into this new, nice God with no sharp edges. We must come to grips with everything he reveals himself to be throughout Scripture and even the things that might seem uncomfortable. This morning, we have good news that our Lord is good, and that he is a stronghold in the day of trouble. We know that if we place all our hope in Christ, that there is no situation that we can experience where our God will disappoint us. He is what he has claimed to be. It means that for the sake of Christ, we can be bold in the face of the trials of this world. Because we have an eternal hope and a refuge. Another thing that we have the opportunity to do that our original audience did not, we have an opportunity to warn the people on whom God's judgment is now coming. We can warn the people who are about to be on the receiving end of God's wrath. God is good, and his all-consuming, total, and perfect goodness is only good news for those who have placed their trust in him. God's goodness is the very thing that shows us how not good we are. His perfection, his holiness, his perfect light, it cannot tolerate darkness. And of such darkness, our Lord will make a complete end. So it is our responsibility to warn those what is coming. Warn those around us of the impending wrath of our God against all things dark and ungodly. They must come to learn and understand the good news that we are not trapped in our sin. Our God, through Christ, has given a way for us to be made righteous. And he has displayed incredible patience and incredible kindness with us, allowing time for us to come to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. But none of us are guaranteed another day. 
that today is the day we must place our faith in Christ because we aren't guaranteed tomorrow. We are each day dependent on our God's long-suffering patience with the entire world. God's patience, God's timing could run out before I am done up here this morning. We don't have time to hum and haw about whether or not we trust the commands of Scripture and the account of Scripture. We must place our faith in Him now. And I want to acknowledge that following the Lord does not excuse God's people from the trials of this life. We still live in a fallen world that is fraught with sin and difficulty and pain and sorrow. Recognize that this message of comfort was being brought to these Hebrew people, and it was likely going to be years between when they received this promise of deliverance and when that deliverance finally showed up. And in the meantime, they were still an oppressed people. They were still being afflicted by the Assyrians. And just because we have God's promise of deliverance, we have God's promise of hope that he is still a good stronghold, we do not escape the difficulty of living in a sinful and fallen world. So we must hold to his promises and find refuge in him even in the midst of the storms that we will have to endure. I praise God that he promises to strengthen and sustain his people that they may stand in the day of trouble. The richness of who God has revealed himself to be is far deeper than just the nice guy God. He's not some heavenly genie or cosmic vending machine that we can just pray and he'll do what we've asked him to do and he's just this good, nice guy up in the sky. He is far more great and far more complex than we can ever hope to fully understand. His wrath and his justice, his mercy and his grace, he is beyond knowing completely and yet he has allowed his people to come to know him. And it is good news for God's people that he is who he has said he is. And it is a terror for those who are against God that he is who he says he is. The Lord is a jealous and avenging. He is slow to anger and great in power. He will by no means clear the guilty. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. And with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. That is the God that we worship and serve, and we are so incredibly privileged and blessed to be able to do so. And not all of us are every day going to be able to keep forefront in our mind the whole, the sum total of what we know God to be. And that is why God has given us a family, has given us the church that we can strengthen and encourage one another 
that when we lose sight of the light at the end of the tunnel, when we lose sight of who God is because the difficulties and the pain and the struggles of this world has begun to overshadow us and to pull us under, God has given us a family that we can encourage and exhort and pull one another up and remind one another of the truths that are to be found in Scripture about who God is. So I encourage each one of us to continue to do that for our brothers and sisters. Know one another. Know one another's struggles and the depths of the pain and the heights of the joy that we experience and encourage one another and lift one another up. That when we suffer, that we would all suffer together. When we have joy, that we would all rejoice together. And as we do so, that we as a whole might come to know who our God is and what he has done. That we would know the God that we worship and that we serve. As the worship team comes to bring us closing song this morning, I ask that you would join with me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we know that there is no end to the things that we have to learn and to discover about you. That you are far greater than we could ever imagine. We know that your wrath and your vengeance is far more terrible than we could ever even begin to experience. That your son, Jesus Christ, has received him himself the wrath that we deserve. And Lord, I pray for those who do not yet know this to be true, that have not yet confessed Jesus as their Lord and Savior, that they might do so now and they might see the nature that you have revealed in yourself that you are a strong tower, that you are a stronghold for your people, and that you know your people, that you know what we go through, you know the pains that we experience, you know the difficulties that your people would face, and that you are here for your people, for their good and for your glory. May we take refuge in you, O Lord. And may we not for a moment shy away from the truths that you have revealed about yourself in Scripture, even though they are difficult for us to understand or maybe even uncomfortable for us. That by both your holiness and your justice and your wrath, as well as your mercy and your kindness and your love, that in all of these things, that we might be encouraged by who you are, that we might grow deeper into a relationship with you, and that we might recognize our need for your work in our lives to conform us to the likeness of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that you are good. We thank you that you are so far beyond anything that we could think or imagine. And we thank you that you have contended for your people and that there is none that can stand against you. 
We thank you that this battle between light and dark, between good and evil, is no battle at all. That you have made an end of all things and that we are in that period where we wait to see the final victory. We wait to see the glorification that will come at the return of your Son, Jesus Christ. When every tear will be dried, where every dark thing will be put away, and every joy and hope that we have found in you might become clear, that faith would become sight, and we might worship you in spirit and in truth. Lord, you are good, and we thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.